All right, now take your Bible and open to uh, John chapter 14. I feel like I say this a lot, uh, especially in the book of John, uh, but I'm telling you what, this is another wonderful portion of Scripture. Uh, it, it is just so rich and so encouraging in truth. And, and as I was studying this week, I really was kind of just overwhelmed uh, with God's goodness, overwhelmed with the truth, as I really kind of slowed down and considered what the text uh, said very carefully. I think a lot of times in the world in which we live, especially in our hurried lives, uh, we read over top of things. We read over top, especially those things we think we're somewhat familiar with uh, because perhaps we're such in a hurry to get through the text to get onto the next thing. And because of that, I think we miss some of the profound truths uh, that God has for us. And uh, you know this, if you've been here for any length of time, we go slower here uh, rather than faster. And, and I make no apology for that. I think slower is better. I think slower is better than faster because when you slow down, it allows you to go deeper. And when you go deeper, it allows you to understand the truth more and, and to really consider what God has to say. So I was thinking I should encourage you, uh, as a general rule in your own study, go slower. In your own personal reading, your own study of the Word, really read what it says. And, and again, not read over top of it. Now, obviously, I get there's a time when you need to move faster through larger portions of material. I got that. <clears throat> but there's also a time to slow down and really listen uh, to what God has to say and, and then try to take it into the best of our ability. And, and you know, if you study the Bible for any length of time, the more you read it and read it over again and over again, God and his Holy Spirit shows you truths that you didn't see the first time. So here we go. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me, because I live, you shall live also." In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which you hear is mine, is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's pray. Again, our Father, we're so thankful for an opportunity to gather together and to worship you, and we're thankful for an opportunity to open your word, and we do pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct us as we study, as we think deeply upon your truth. Transform and change us by that truth, we pray. And we pray for our dear brother John and Linda, and just pray your blessing upon them. Pray you give wisdom to the physicians and uh, patients, uh, uh, to both John and Linda, as they deal with this uh, infirmity. Thankful, we're thankful for the fact that you have given to us, in your great kindness, uh, physicians, doctors who can deal with these kind of things. And so, uh, we're thankful that those are available to us. Now, again, go before us and, and guide us to this hour, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I, I'm going to say it again. I just think this is a tremendously wonderful portion of Scripture. Uh, again, if we just slow down and see what the Lord has to say and consider it carefully, I, I think we're going to be encouraged and tremendously blessed by it. The Lord is making promises to those who truly belong to him. And he's making promises of his abiding presence. Something that we will enjoy, we got that to some extent. We, we understand that to some extent throughout all of eternity. We're going to enjoy the presence of God throughout all of eternity. Okay, I got that uh, to the best of our ability to understand that. But what he's saying is, I'm going to give you a promise here now, in time. And the promise is the amazing fact that the Trinity lives within every Christian. The amazing fact that every believer is in constant, unending, eternal communion with the Godhead. That's what he's saying in the portion of Scripture I just read. And again, he's saying it's not just something that's going to happen in the future, but it's a very present reality now. It's something that's true of our lives now as believers 
in Christ. And, and again, I'm not quite sure that most Christians completely understand that truth. I, I'm quite certain, at least to the level that God would be pleased for us to, to, to possess and understand that truth. So let me just give you a, just a real quick flyover here, a high-level look. It just some uh, what he's saying in this passage. Uh, look there at verse 16 again. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, that's the Holy Spirit. You say, are you certain? I am. How? Look down at verse 26. We'll see if my interpretation is correct. Verse 26, the helper, here it is, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So I'm good, right? Back to 16. I'm going to ask the Father to send you the Holy Spirit. That's the helper. The helper. And he will be with you how long? Forever. Verse 18, Christ says, I will come to you. Verse 20, in that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And listen, we will come to him and make our abode with him. Jesus says, look, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Then he says, I'm going to come to you. And then he says, the Father is going to come to you. And then he says, we are going to come to you. That's the promise of the Trinitarian presence in the life of these 11 disciples in front of him. And that's the promise to every true follower in Christ. That's a profound truth. Now, again, remember, we're in the upper room discourse, as it is known. It's Thursday night. We're just literally a few hours uh, away from the crucifixion of Christ. And these men are anxious. They're troubled in spirit. Chapter 13, Jesus has dismissed the betrayer Judas. He said that Peter is going to deny him. And then he's also told the disciples that he's going to depart. He's going to die. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be mistreated horribly and then crucified. He's going to rise from the dead, go back to the Father, go back to heaven. And obviously, they're having a very difficult time absorbing this, taking this all in. Again, we're here. They're on this side of the cross. They don't know what comes next. We do. They don't know what's going to happen. So they're having a difficult time with this whole thing. So Jesus says at the top of the, at the, top of the chapter, stop letting your heart be anxious. Believe God. Believe me. Because, again, the only place to go with a troubled heart in the midst of trouble is to go to Jesus Christ. That's the only place to flee to. And it's the command of Christ not to become anxious. The command of Christ is to firmly put your trust in him and put your trust in God. You believe in God, believe in me also, and stop letting your hearts be anxious. Now, again, he's told them they don't have to be troubled. They shouldn't be by way of command. And then he's gone on to tell them at the top of the chapter that there's going to be a wonderful day of reunion in the Father's house because there are many places to dwell there, many dwelling places. And then he says, Christ says if he goes, he's going to come back. He's going to receive them to himself. He's going to take those who belong to him back to him from earth back to heaven. It was a tremendous uh, promise that the early church held on to dearly, that promise of the return of Christ to take people from earth back to heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, For we say this to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not proceed from those who have fallen, proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout of a voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be uh, with the Lord. Therefore, he says, comfort one another with these words. Again, comfort for the troubled heart comes from knowing truth. Now, when Thomas says, Lord, you know, Jesus says, I'm going to go, you know where I'm going, Jesus says, and Thomas says, well, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way i am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but through me jesus says in essence thomas just get in line and follow me now the words of jesus i am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me these words are probably amongst if not the uh, most controversial things that jesus has ever said but what jesus says is true because he is truth incarnate 
He's making the claim that he is the only legitimate way to God. He is saying that all the other proposed ways and all the other uh, religious systems or religions, all the other so-called religious rulers are false. They're all illegitimate. Because if Jesus is not the only way to God, then there is no way to God because Jesus says no one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus goes on and he explains to these troubled individuals who are anxious that knowing the Father is knowing the Son. That's verses 7 and 8, that there's a unity and dependence between Jesus and the Father. That's verses 9 through 11. They're one in essence, and then Jesus reaffirms his deity uh, to uh, calm these men's troubled hearts. Verses 12 through 14, Jesus again reassures uh, these disciples with troubled hearts that when he departs from the Father, the work that they have uh, just began on earth will continue. The fact that the followers of Christ are going to do even greater works, greater in extent, not greater in kind, but greater in extent when Christ leaves because the person of the Holy Spirit will come and empower them for, for ministry. And the disciples, the followers of Christ, are going to proclaim the gospel throughout the entire world. Right? That's a greater work, something that didn't happen when, when, when Christ was incarnate. And then Christ promises that the gap between him and the earth, the gap between heaven and earth at his departure is closed instantaneously by prayer. That if men would come and ask in his name that the Father would be glorified in the Son, they could count on God hearing and answering that prayer. I mean, it's just one encouragement after another. That even after uh, his departure, when they no longer see him, they will know that he still loves them, that he still cares for them. It's just wonderful truth. And then last week, we just began to look here at verse 15, which defines who these promises are for. Who are the promises for? Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So he's saying, look, a true follower of Christ, a true Christian loves the Lord. Therefore, he wants to obey the Lord. He wants to obey him. Because a real love for Christ is really demonstrated by acts of eager, joyful responses of obedience to what he says, to what he commands. Is what you say about your love for Christ really is relatively unimportant but really counts as your obedience. And you show your love for Christ the way you live your life. Now, obviously, as I said last time, you asked the question, what are the commands? Well, the commands, in short, are everything that God's word says, everything that God commands by his word, the entire revelation of the will of the Father. Okay, we've got that. But this very night, perhaps just an hour or so earlier, Jesus said back in chapter 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Here's the standard, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So when you start talking about the commands, I think you've got to give a little bit of consideration to near context. Again, Sean 14.1, let not your heart be troubled. That's not a suggestion. Be anxious for nothing is not a suggestion. And disobedience marks itself by anxiousness, by trouble, by anxiety, by fear. How much of your life are you really in control of? How much of the lives of your family and friends are you really in control of? Who who in the room in the last 30 seconds said, beat heart, beat heart, beat heart, make my heart beat, 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 take a breath, right? Your very life you're not in control of. When we are letting not our hearts be troubled, but believing in God, believing in me, we're being obedient to the scripture, but we're actually acknowledging, did not we sing about this, the sovereignty of God? Did I read a psalm that talked about the sovereignty of God? Here's the rubber meat in the road. Verse 11, believe in me that I am in, my fa- in the Father, and my Father in me, otherwise believe on account of the works. Believe who I am. So I don't think it would be unwise to at least note the near context. We got the whole truth. Okay, how about the near context? How about the importance of the command to love your brother in Christ as Christ has loved us? How about that taking it from a, a philosophical, ethereal, yes, like, you know, let's talk about the atonement. How about we just break it down to what does that look like to what I love my brother? 
What does it really look like? How about, again, the command, the importance of stop letting our hearts be troubled? How about the importance of the command to believe in God, to continue to believe in God, continue to believe in Christ? How about the command to pray in his name and expect to hear an answer? I think these things have to be kept in the forefront of our minds as you look at verse 15. And again, in verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love, keep, and commandments are the predominant words in in that sentence. My commandment, the predominant phrase that once again points to the deity of Christ, because no mere man or apostle or prophet ever called God's word my commandments. But Jesus does, and Jesus did, and Jesus has the authority because he's God in flesh. He has the authority to command us how to live. So verse 15 really defines the Christian. It's marked by a love for Christ, an obedience to Christ, a joyful obedience from the heart. We as men tend to look at people's actions and try to interpret their hearts, but that's deceptive. Because people can act outwardly in a certain way without the heart. People can act in a certain way but not really be motivated by a love for Christ. 1 Samuel 16, 7. God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's a verse we shared with our kids numerous times when they were younger and growing up. We weren't just looking for outward conformity. We were looking for that, but we were also looking for obedience from a heart, a right heart, because that's what God demands from us. That's exactly what Christ says. Luke 6 and 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's probably something to stop and ponder and think about. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Get on to the next verse. I don't know, maybe. I'm teaching. I'll go when I want. Commands of obedience from the heart. Stopping and really considering what the word of God has to say. If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll love the, my brother, my brethren, right? Those who, who love me. He, he repeats it in verse 21, he repeats it in verse 23, and then he reverses it to the negative in verse 24. He who has my commandments keeps them. It is he who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my word. Defines a Christian. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. I mean, just, again, wonderful truths. Honestly, staggering personal promises from Christ to his followers who are anxious in heart. Staggering personal promises of hope to those of us who love him and are willing to obey him. And again, here is the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Again, we just started into this last week. So to his disciples in front of him, the Lord says, you don't need to worry. Believe in God. Keep on believing in me. Trust me. Because in my absence, verse 16, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another. Another helper. Alas, I told you that last time. It's another of the same kind. I'm going to give you another one just like me. Helper, parakletos, comforter, advocate, counselor, and some of your versions. It means one summoned, one called to one side, especially to give aid, an advocate, a counselor, an exhorter, an intercessor, an encourager. I will ask, (coughs) excuse me, the Father, and he'll give you another one like me. To do what? It's a tough one. I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another one like me. To do what? To help. There you go. To help. Okay, here's the next question. To help with what? Answer. Everything. Right? That's what helpers do. They help. I'll ask the Father. He'll give you one who will bring you comfort, one who will bring you encouragement, one who can warn, one who can teach, one who can illuminate the truth of the Scripture, one who can empower you, one who can give you wisdom, one who will warn you about temptation, one who will help you to fight temptation. One who in his presence will draw you closer in a relationship with God. One who will provide, you, provide for you and protect you and always exactly like I did. That's what a helper does. He helps. At every level, whenever you need it the most, the helper helps. 
But here again, I think we, if we don't slow down, we go too fast, we miss what he's saying. And read it with me together. It says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That's a personal promise. That's an individual promise. I'm going away. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper. Again, a helper who's like me, a helper who helps, a helper who's personal, who is individual, a helper who comes alongside and provides help wherever you need it, whenever you need it, a helper who will be with you always just like I have been and just like I have helped you. So again, you ask the question, well, how did Jesus help these guys in the last three years or so of his ministry? He helped them everywhere in all aspects of their life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who love Christ, in the life of those who obey him, who keep his commandments. It's personal. It's individual. It's one who comes alongside constantly. And then again, note the phrase, he, right? I will ask the Father and he will, he will give you uh, another helper that will be with you, what, how long? Not temporarily. Permanently. Forever. I'm going away, but he's going to be with you always. I'm going away, but he, you're never going to be alone. I'm going away, but it's going to be just like it's going to be in the future, like it's going to be in eternity, where you're going to have a perfect, forever, permanent relationship with the Trinity in heaven. Yes, that's true, but the promise is also a now promise. It's a promise now for the disciples. It's a promise now for us who love the Lord and obey him. That's why the Lord says in verse 16 in part, uh, or chapter 16, verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Pretty wild. A personal, permanent promise that he will be with you always, that you are never going to be alone. Do you ever feel like you're alone? Do you ever feel like nobody understands you, like you're going through life amidst all of your struggles by yourself? My dear friend, if that's the case, then when we all find ourselves in those kind of positions, we need to not listen to ourselves, but we need to speak truth to ourselves. Speak the truth of the word of God to us. We're never alone. I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth. Well, of course he is, because he's God. God is truth. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is truth. Now, again, I spoke to that to some detail last time that concerning the deity of the Holy Spirit, the fact that he's not some vague power source that we, quote-unquote, tap into or, quote-unquote, get a hold of uh, to use for our benefit. We spoke to the fact that it's absolutely improper to refer to him as an it or a thing or an influence. He's a divine person a divine person of infinite majesty, glory, holiness, and power, the third member of the Trinity. One who is full deity, but yet one who uh, possesses all the attributes of personhood, intellect, knowledge, mind, emotion, a will. The Holy Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit testifies. He guides. He convicts. He intercedes. uh, He commands. He can be grieved. He can be blasphemed. He can be resisted. He can be lied to. He can be obeyed, and, and he loves. Again, those are all the attributes of personhood. Now, I told you last time the, the word for spirit is pneuma in the Greek, which is a neuter gender word, but the biblical writers always refer to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament using the masculine. It's always he or him. And again, the Holy Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit is a person just like Jesus was a person. Holy Spirit is not some mystical force or power, not some floating, uh, floating fog or some kind of ghost-like emanation. Therefore, pneuma translated spirit is probably, uh, uh, translated as spirit is probably a better rendering than ghost, as he unfortunately is in the authorized version in a lot of older writings. He's the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Ghost. 
We're talking about a real person, not Casper the friendly ghost, right? He's a person. Deity. The deity of the Holy Spirit is inextricably bound up with the doctrine of the Trinity. The denial of one is a denial of the other. Conversely, belief in the Trinity necessitates a belief in the deity of the Holy Spirit. It comes from the Moody Bible uh, book on uh, theology. Westminster Larger Catechism, 1648. To question number nine says, How many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer, there be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Bad word. We could correct it for them if they'd like. But these three are true. One true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. 1689, Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 2, on of God and the Holy Trinity, paragraph 3. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided, the Father is none, the Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding, The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, all without beginning. Therefore, but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar uh, relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine uh, of the Trinity is the foundation of our communion with God and a comfortable dependence upon him. One, One more. Uh, the, the Belgianic, uh, Belgic Confession, written in 1561, says the Bible teaches there's one eternal God who's the creator, sustainer of the universe. He is the only God that exists. However, within the nature of this one God are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are co-equal, co-eternal. They are also distinguishable or distinct from one another. These three distinct persons are of one God. Everything that is true about God is true about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, the statement goes on and says, the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Father, and likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Three persons distinguished, not divided nor intermixed, for the Father has not assumed the flesh, nor has the Holy Spirit, but only the Son. The Father has never been seen without his Son, nor without his Holy Spirit, for all three are co-eternal, co-essential. There is neither one nor last, for they are all three in one, in truth, power, goodness, and in mercy. That, those are great statements uh, by a lot of wise men who spent a lot of time looking over the Scripture and trying to come up with a proper understanding of what the Bible teaches on the issue of the Trinity. One God, three distinct eternal personalities or persons. To think, as some do, to think that there is one God who appears sometimes as the Father, and then kind of takes that mask off, as it were, and puts it away, and then puts on the mask of the Son, and then puts that one away, and then puts on the mask of the Holy Spirit, if you will, to think there is one God who appears in three different persons, or one God who appears as three different persons or modes, is called the error of modalism. And it's a tremendous uh, error. It's actually promoted by people even this day. It's a tremendous error and an improper understanding of the Godhead. Modalists, uh, one is Pentecostals. Uh, they believe there's uh, no Trinity. Only one God. And again, sometimes God acts like the Father. Sometimes he, in the mode of the Father, sometimes he acts like the Son. In the mode of the Son, sometimes he acts like the Holy Spirit in the mode of the Holy Spirit. But modalism's heresy. At the baptism of Christ, Matthew 3, verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove coming up uh, upon him, and behold, the voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.16. Now, I got it, the doctrine of the Trinity is difficult to understand, but it's what the Bible teaches. And to come to any other conclusion or any other understanding of God is to reject biblical revelation, and it's to come 
as it's to come to any other understanding of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, the one who's equal in nature with God, but distinguished from the Father, is to have a wrong understanding of the biblical Jesus. So if we come to a wrong understanding of the biblical God, a wrong understanding of the Trinity, a wrong understanding of, uh, of uh, uh, the, the deity of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're in a whole lot of trouble. Because now we're worshiping a different God. That's why modalism is a heresy. God the Holy Spirit. As to the deity of the Holy Spirit, he possesses divine attributes of life, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, eternality, holiness, love, truth. You see the work uh, of the, the, the deity and the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of creation. Uh, the heaven, he created the heavens and the earth. You see the deity of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if we ever think about this, but the deity of the Holy Spirit in generating in the womb of Mary, Christ. Assuming that Christ, or assuring that Christ would be sinless humanity but yet still eternal deity. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. See the work of the Holy Spirit? And the inspiration of the Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God, 2 Peter 1.20. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You see the work of the Holy Spirit? the divine work of the Holy Spirit and the work of regeneration. He's the one who gives new life. He's the one who gives new birth. John 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, and it's literally born from above, can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter into a second time in his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God of God that which is born of the flesh is flesh that which is born of the spirit is spirit right we need spiritual regeneration to come to life Titus 3 and 4 but in the kindness of our God and our Savior in his love for us when his love for mankind appeared he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior I mean it just goes on and on you see the Holy Holy Spirit's divine work in intercession and sanctification and helping the saints, etc., and so forth. Uh, you, you see, again, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the baptism of Christ. What's that all about? I mean, I just read it uh, just a moment ago, right? Descending from heaven and, and resting on Jesus. You know what he's doing? He's marking him out. He's identifying him. He is it. He, he's anointing him. He is the king of Israel, right? But, because that's who he is. So he's letting everybody know this is the one. It was the Holy Spirit after the baptism who led the, the person of Jesus into the, to the wilderness to, to be tempted. It was the Holy Spirit who enabled him and empowered him to survive those days and to resist all the temptation of the desert. And, and throughout all of his life, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The deity of the Holy Spirit. The personhood of the Holy Spirit. Again, divine titles given to him. The scripture says that, that, that he is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy One. And as I read to you out of Acts chapter 5 last time, uh, when Ananias lied, Peter said, Satan has filled your heart the light of the Holy Spirit. You've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. He is very clearly called God. That's the Holy Spirit. Back to the text, Jesus says, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you one another just like me. Another helper exactly like me. That he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. That's the one whom Jesus is asking the Father to send. One who's exactly like him, one who's absolutely divine, one who's deity just like Jesus is, a divine helper who can help you always, one who's truth, whom the world, it goes on, it says, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Well, of course it can't. The world can't understand and receive the Spirit because He's holy and He's truth. And as you see all around us, the Spirit of truth is not very popular in an age of lies. The world can't perceive the Spirit because they don't know the Spirit. They don't know Him. This entire world system is under the delusion and the controlling lies of the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. One who's a liar, one who's a murderer. 
Again, we were talking about this this morning. Some of the activities that are being encouraged and promoted in this country are, listen to me, they're not just evil. They are outright demonic. They are demonic from the pit. The mutilation of our children is from the pit. It's demonic. It needs to be called out as such. The world can't receive him. Speaking of uh, of the false religious leaders of Israel at the time when Christ was incarnate. Or speaking to them, uh, the words that Christ is going to, I'm going to repeat here in John 8. He says, look, these are, these are applicable to you. These are really applicable to everybody who doesn't know me. These are applicable to everybody who's still in rebellion against me and the Father. Uh, John 8 and 44, you are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He's a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand to the truth. There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's the whole world in rebellion. The world can't receive the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're foolish to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. Stop and think on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit arrived. He arrives in visible power, and men began to proclaim the glories of God in human languages. That's what biblical tongues is. Human languages that were not their own, they proclaimed the glories of Christ. And the unbelieving bystanders accused these spirit-filled believers of being drunk. Acts chapter 2, verse 13. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Now, when Jesus said, I'm going to send the spirit of truth and the world can't receive them, he's also giving them kind of a heads up. He's trying to warn them that they're going to face opposition. They're going to face rejection and hostility from an unbelieving world. John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. The world In the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. You're going to have a problem when you confront the spirit of the age. And we need to live as light, and we need to live as salt in a world of perversion, a foul world of darkness. Stop repeating lies. Stop affirming lies. And then expect opposition, but it's okay because my Father in heaven is in charge. And whatever the outcome he has ordained, I'm good with because he loves me and has given himself for me. Now, on the positive side, when Jesus says, I'm going to send the spirit of truth, that emphasizes the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals truth to us as believers. He's the one who guides believers into spiritual truth. In fact, in John 15, 26, he says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness of me. I'm going to send This one from the Father, the Spirit of Truth. Again, you got the Trinity involved in Revelation. John 16, 13. When he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you that which is to come. He shall glorify me, and he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. Here in chapter 14, verse 26, he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So what does that mean when you kind of put all those verses together? It says when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to bring revelation. He's going to bring revelation to these men because he's the spirit of truth. It really is the initial promise that these disciples and those associated with them, uh, when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to come not only for the purpose of being their helper, but he's going to come for the purpose of writing the New Testament through these men. Because, again, revelation originates with God. And God discloses that revelation concerning the person of Jesus Christ through men whom he chooses. Exactly what Peter says, I Referenced it just a few moments ago, Second Peter one twenty one. No prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, Richard Phillips, who's a Presbyterian minister who I've found kind of helpful, makes an interesting observation here. Uh, referring to the connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And you'll see why it's interesting here in a moment. He says this. 
Christianity is not a religion of mystical insight, intuition, or ritual technique, but of revealed truth through the word of God. It is largely, he says, because of erroneous views regarding the Holy Spirit that so many Christians today are suspicious of believers who are devoted to knowing Christ's truth. Excuse me, who are devoted to knowing Christ's truth and who revere the Bible as the very word of God given by the Spirit to lead us to a true knowledge of divine revelation. He says, for many, being spiritual means being non-dogmatic and imprecise. But according to Jesus, to be spiritual is to be biblical, for the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, through uh, who, through the Scripture, will guide you into all truth. To be sure, this revelation will give us more than head knowledge, but will not give us any less. Paul says the way for us to progress spiritually is to be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may discern what the will of God is through the truth of God's word, Romans 12. I thought that was really interesting. May we pound the truth here. You think there are people who call themselves Christians out there that want to be imprecise? Non-dogmatic? <laughs> really? And they think that's a sign of spirituality? Yeah. Why? Because they've been filled with so much bad theology about the person of the Holy Spirit that when, according to, the, according to Jesus, it, it's the truth that causes to be a great division between mankind. It's the truth that reveals that great division. This is the truth. More Christians are interested, a lot of people who call themselves Christians are more interested than feeling, in feeling good than being precise. I don't know. I might have heard it a couple times. You're pretty dogmatic. <laughs> You're not very nice. Well, I might be dogmatic. I might not be very nice, but I hope I'm at least biblical. Right? I've said you this analogy before. You walk into the doctor's room. He pulls a knife out and says, we're going to do surgery. Guarantee you, you want your doctor to be precise. We will cut off your left leg. I know you came in for a hangnail, but we're cutting your left leg off because I got some extra time. Right? You want him to be precise, not imprecise. It's crazy on a spiritual level that we would not want precision. But again, so many people have been told the Holy Spirit is this power, this influence, this force, and I got to feel like this. May the force be with you. I don't know if that's that's uh, Christian theology or George Lucas. You know, and you can't sometimes can't tell the difference. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. Again, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who belong to Christ and those who don't. And those who don't, those of the world, are spiritually blind to the truth. Listen, the world rejected truth in the flesh. Uh, the world rejected truth incarnate when Christ was here physically. Uh, they failed to recognize him. Likewise, they're going to fail to recognize the Holy Spirit because unregenerate people can't comprehend spiritual truth. Uh, unregenerate people have no faculty for spiritual perception. When Christ was here on the earth, the great minds of the day, the religious leaders who repeatedly came in contact with truth in the flesh, truth incarnate, they heard the words of Christ, they saw his compassion, they saw his love, they saw his uh, supernatural power demonstrated over and over again, his power over the physical realm, his power over the uh, spiritual realm, the supernatural realm, and they concluded with great blasphemous error that Jesus was from the devil. The only way that a person can understand the things of God is to be indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. Because, again, the natural man can't understand the Holy Spirit's work. Romans 8 and 7 the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 17 again says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him, but listen, but you do. But you know him. And he abides with you and will be in you. Now, the word abide there means remain, dwell, reside. You, but you know him because he abides. It's present, active, indicative. Just meaning it's a reality of the fact, presently. 
You know him because he abides with you and will be in, in you. He abides with you and will be in you. Now, there's a lot that has been said by the commentators on that phraseology. A lot that has been said, a lot that could be said, but let me try to get it down to the something concise. Again, you've got these 11 men sitting in front of him. Christ is promising them they won't be left alone. He, he's assuring them that they're not going to be left to fend for themselves. He's going to send to them a supernatural helper. So again, the Lord is promising to send the Holy Spirit to indwell these disciples in the future. Now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't present or active at this time. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't uh, present before the time of Pentecost. Especially when you think back of the Old Testament. One writer says this, No one in any area of redemptive history could have been saved, sanctified, empowered for service and witness, or guided in understanding Scripture and praying in the will of God apart from the Spirit's eternal soul work. That he was already present with the disciples before the cross is clear from the present tense verb translated abide. Right? He abides with you. That's a present active reality. You know him because he abides, uh, he, because he abides or dwells with you. So I guess you've got to ask the question, well, how does that work out? How do you know that? How do you know the Holy Spirit dwells within you? How, how do you know that you know him? Now, again, remember the conversation back in John chapter 3. I referenced this a few moments ago between Jesus and Nicodemus. In John 3, 8, Jesus told Nicodemus that the Spirit is like the wind. Have you ever seen the wind? Answer, no. Nobody's seen the wind. But you have seen the effects of the wind. See the trees rustle. You see the, move, the, the, the leaves go. You, you see dirt swirl around. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You, you don't see him, and you don't know him by subjective inner feelings alone. The only re- reality that you say the wind is in the room or that the, the Holy Spirit is present is by his effect. That would mean that the Holy Spirit has come and changed your life, changed your heart, changed your desires. How do you know the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you now? Because you used to hate God, you used to hate the truth, and you used to fight against the truth or at least ignore the truth. But now you love the truth. You don't, love, you don't hate God, you don't hate Christ, you love God, you, you, you love Christ, you love the Word. Uh, you want to obey the Word. You want to obey God, you want to obey Christ. You delight in them. Now, you want to obey God's will. The Bible comes and confronts you on some issue of sin in your life, and, and you welcome that confrontation because you realize that sin is destroying your life and, and destroying relationships uh, with him and others. You used to care nothing about the cross. You used to be indifferent to the cross and the death of Christ on the cross, but now you love him and you love what he's done there for you, that he's taken your place, he stood in your, in, in your uh, part and paid the eternal penalty for your sin. Again, you used to not be concerned whatsoever about your sin, but now you are more and more. More and more you hate your sin. More and more as you grow in Christ and your love for Christ, you're not only hating your sin, but you're actually experiencing victory over sin in your life. That's how you know. That's how you know him. You know him because he abides, again, present active, with you. And then he says he'll be in you. Now, obviously, these men's lives had to have been changed because they left their professions and they started following Christ. So the Holy Spirit was with them. But now the promise is greater. He's going to be in you. Apparently, as you look at the Old Testament, uh, everybody in the Old Testament, while they were influenced by the person of the Holy Spirit who were believers, they weren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's ministry consisted uh, uh, actually coming upon uh, somebody empowering that person for a special service, like giving supernatural strength to Samson or revealing the truth to the prophets, etc. and so forth. But there's no suggestion in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit came and permanently indwelt anybody in the Old Testament. That's an aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is unique to the New Testament, New Testament era, again, ever since Pentecost. And we receive the Holy Spirit upon conversion when we hear the gospel and respond by faith to Christ. So the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit historically happens at Pentecost And it's a promise unique to those who, uh, upon conversion, respond by faith in Christ. And again, it's the ministry, uh, a New Testament, a New Covenant ministry. 
looking forward to it from the Old Testament perspective, Ezekiel, God through Ezekiel, uh, says in Ezekiel 20, uh, 36, verse 26, Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Uh, Ezekiel 37, verse 14, I'll put my spirit in you and you'll live. Again, that's looking forward to the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit to permanently dwell. It again happens at Pentecost. You know him because he already abides in you. He dwells in you. Again, present active with you and will be future tense in you. Again, we're, we're going through a line of history. So they're at a certain point here. They're not They're before the cross. They're before the time of Pentecost. He said, look, no longer, there's going to come a day where no longer there's the Holy Spirit just going to be present, but he's going to personally indwell you permanently. There's going to be an uninterrupted abiding presence of the Holy Spirit within you. One commentator says this, one of the old covenants or uh, of the Old Testament era, uh, one of the truths was the spirit was present with believers in a general sense. But as soon as Christ promised his disciples, the comforter would come in an unprecedented way personally and permanently to indwell those who believe. There was to come for the believer a giving of the spirit by which unique power would be provided for ministry and evangelism that happened on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was given to believers in new fullness that became normative from all believers or for all believers since. I mean, that's just a tremendous truth. Right now, he's uh, with you. He is with you, but he's going to be future in you. Again, verse 16. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may be with you. How long? Forever. That's comfort for time. That's comfort for eternity for the troubled heart. And once the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within the believer, he's never going to leave. Because once the Holy Spirit comes up and takes residence within you, he is with you for how long? Forever. The Spirit of truth, verse 17, you know him because he presently abides in you or dwells in you or with you and will be in you. So again, at conversion, a believer is permanently dwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. By one Spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all made to drink of one Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon us at conversion. And at conversion, holy, the people who are uh, genuine believers are permanently dwelt by this person. And once the person of the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, he's there forever. I mean, are you starting to get it? Am I compounding the truths? Where you go, what a privilege we have. What a great privilege we have been given in God's kindness and grace that he is implanting his very essence within us. So it begs the question, why in the world are we ever anxious? Why are we ever troubled in spirit? When in the day in which we live, post-cross, post-Pentecost, on that side... He's not just with us, but he's actually in us. And at every moment of our existence throughout all of eternity, from the moment we believe upon Christ, we have the abiding presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing truth. And one last, ground, or one last point here, I guess you have to ask, what grounds can the Holy Spirit do then? How, how can he come and permanently dwell in a body of a believer where we know we still have sin present? Well, he can come not based on anything found in us, not in our personal fitness. The only possible answer why the Holy Spirit can come and dwell with us as believers, again, is found through the new covenant being ratified through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's on the ground of the atoning sacrifice of Christ that the Holy Spirit can indwell the believer as Christ's shed blood has atoned for our sin. It's actually the excellency and sufficiency of the person uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, his one offering. His one offering, the one offering of Christ, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, has perfected forever those who are set apart. By the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us because Jesus Christ paid the penalty to allow the Holy Spirit to come and live within us. I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. 
that the spirit of truth, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. But not only that, he says, you're going to have my presence. Not only that, you're going to have my presence. Verse 18. I'll not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live, you shall also live. I will not leave you as orphans. There's probably no more destitute class of people on the planet than an orphan because they lack everything. They don't have the loving care of a family. Uh, orphans don't have parents because their parents are died or gone. Uh, parent, uh, orphans have been left alone. Uh, orphans have lost their provider. Orphans are left without instruction. Orphans have no defender. But Jesus says, look, with my true followers, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you. It's a veiled reference to his death upcoming. Again, I think he understands their sense of loss. And again, when he leaves, he wants them to know it's only going to be temporary. I will not leave you as orphans. Here it is. I will come to you. I will come to you. Now, there's a lot of discussion on this one amongst the commentators on exactly what the phrase means, I will come to you. In fact, don't tell anybody, but I actually hit print, shuffled the notes together, sat down, had a cup of coffee, and said, I don't like what I wrote. I've got to think this through again. I've got to think through. I will come to you. What, what is he talking about? <clears throat> and, and again, I, just, I do think it causes us to stop and think. I think there are a couple things going on when he makes that statement, I will come to you. Now again, literally, we're just hours from the crucifixion. Hours, Jesus is going to be dead. I will come to you, I think at the very least, is a promise to his followers that he's going to rise from the dead. They don't know that yet, but he's told them this promise. Right? He's telling them that his death on the cross is not going to be the end of his existence or the end of their relationship, I will come to you. But what else is going on here? Now, some people believe that when Jesus says, I'll come to you, it's a reference to the second coming. Others believe it's a reference to the fact that he's going to see them after the resurrection. I'll come to you. Three days, I'll come to you. There's a certain amount of truth to that, but I don't think that's probably the best way to interpret the phrase and really to understand what he's saying to them here. He's going to be gone for a short amount of time, three days, then reunited. Okay. But when he was reunited after the resurrection, how long was he on the earth? Forty days. It's not long-term encouragement. It's not long-term comfort. So I think probably the best way to answer what the Lord means by the phrase, I will not leave you as orphans and I will come to you, other than, again, it's a wonderful truth that he's going to defeat death. They're going to see, to him, see him again. Is probably that he's speaking about his spiritual presence in every believer through the agency of the Holy Spirit. He's probably speaking about his spiritual presence in every believer through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And I think what he is saying is that when the Spirit of God comes and resides within you permanently, when the Holy Spirit comes and resides within every genuine believer... He says, I will be there also. How do you get there? Well, wasn't that part of the promise in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When you struggle, you go to John MacArthur. This is what John MacArthur says. It's truth. You know that as well as I do if you teach John MacArthur says this, This is the mystery of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit abides in us, Christ indwells us, and God is in us. We are fully united spiritually with each member of the Godhead. That is the source of eternal life. And Jesus goes on and says, Because I live, you shall also live. That's helpful. So again, stop being anxious. Stop letting your heart be troubled. I'm going to send you one exactly like me. The person the Holy Spirit is going to be your helper, the Spirit of Truth one who will abide with you and who will be in you. And I will not only send you to the person of the Holy Spirit, but I'm coming back. 
to be with you. Again, it's a promise of his personal presence, the presence of the Son, the presence of the Son who uh, is resurrected, who defeated death, who's eternally the living Son, the death conqueror. I will not leave you as orphans, and I will come to you. Verse 19 says, After a little while the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live, you shall live also. After a little while, the world will behold me no more. That's true. The unbelieving world never saw Jesus Christ after, uh, physically after his uh, death. In his resurrection, uh, apparently only the disciples, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, saw him. And most certainly, the unbelieving world has no capacity to understand Christ's presence through, again, the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, because they're all spiritually dead without the Spirit. In a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. You'll see me. And then he says, because I live, you shall also live. Or you shall live also. Paul understood that. Galatians 2 and 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So Christ's victory over death, Christ's resurrection guarantees our victory over death, guarantees our eternal resurrection, our life. His resurrection again secures our spiritual life. He obtains for us forgiveness of sin once for all, and he obtains for us the certainty of our future resurrection on that day. Because I live, you shall also, you shall live also. One writer says this, spiritually dead individuals understand nothing about God. They can't respond to God. But the person who is spiritually alive lives in another dimension. He's alive to the spiritual realm. And the source of his life is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the scripture speaks of eternal life, it isn't really speaking about the quantity or duration of the redeemed life. It's a reference to the kind of life that makes a person sensitive and aware of the realm of glory where God himself abides. Here's the essence of spiritual life, to be alive spiritually, walking with God, sensing the Holy Spirit, (coughs) communicating (coughs) with the Spirit, moving and participating in the spiritual realm. The world can't know anything about that. In a little while the world will see me no more. Behold me no more, but you'll see me. Verse 20, in that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you and me and I and you. Commentaries, uh, commentators divide over that phraseology too in that day. It's probably the day of Pentecost. In that day. In that day when the Holy Spirit comes and permanently dwells the church, the people of the church, uh, he's going to reveal to the disciples what they could not see, they did not see at that moment. In that day you shall know this, I am in my Father and you and me and I in you. It's an unbelievable, amazing union, right? There's an unbelievable, amazing union, obviously, between the members of the Godhead, but there's also an unbelievable union that we have with Christ and the members of the Trinity. One writer says this, the Trinity lives in every Christian. Every believer is in a constant, unending, eternal communion with the Trinity. He says this is a staggering truth. Every Christian at all times and forever and forever and is, a vital, is in a vital life union with the Trinity. Your spiritual life is the life of God. The fact that you are alive spiritually, that you died with Christ and now is alive because the life of God is in your soul. You cannot separate eternal life from the source of eternal life. You cannot have eternal life as something God gives without having God because it is his life. Truth infinitely beyond us, just as the divine nature is challenging to grasp as profound truth as uh, that of uh, the Trinity. <clears throat> There's a theological word that kind of encapsulates this whole discussion that Christ is giving us. It's wow. I'm not sure that it's technically a, a divine theological word, but it's the best one I come up with. Think of the hymn writer when he writes on the substitution of Christ. He says, When I think that God his Son not spare and sent him to die, scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Now we think a lot about the substitution, substitutionary work of Christ, and we should. But I think we can apply that same line of thinking when we consider the fact that Christ has promised to send to us the person of the Holy Spirit to be with us and to be in us forever. And when we think of God's promise not to leave us as orphans, Christ's promise, but to come to us, again, defeating death as the resurrected Christ, and promising us who love him, us who obey his commandments, us who have been called by the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God, 
I think we can safely say when we start to understand the truth of the indwelling trinity within us, I scarce can take it in. Most assuredly, I think we can say, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. It goes on. There's more. The next thing he's going to lay out is the promise of the coming of the Father. We will come. We will make our abode. My Father who loves you. Staggering truth. Staggering truth that we struggle to get our minds around, but truth we need to understand and live by because the command of Scripture is not to be anxious. Command of Scripture is to believe God, believe Christ. Rejoice in God's goodness. And that's what we want to do. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your words, so thankful for this truth that you have revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. We pray you would help us to fulfill the command to stop letting our hearts be troubled. Believe the truth. Live according to the truth. Rejoice in the truth, because your word is truth. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.